Hi everyone, I am here for episode four of No Cap with Brit, and I have the esteemed David Poco with me. Um, he is one of my new studio mates at The Loom, and I'm so excited that he's there because he's definitely bringing a real professional artist aspect to my candy-eating ways. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> you give me too much credit. No, 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 no. Like, you've got it together, but... Um, he and I were just sitting here um, chatting a little bit about First Fridays and things and talking about what we would begin the conversation with. And he's like, I didn't do any art stuff today. And that's just a great way to start. Do you, what is your practice like on that? Do you try to keep to a schedule or do you just do what feels right? Um, it's a little bit of both. If I have looming deadlines, then I have a schedule that I stick to pretty strictly. Um, lately, since I started a new part-time job a couple months ago, my studio time has usually been like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then I'm working Monday through Wednesday. Um, that's currently not set in stone because I'm not working towards anything. Um, just kind of enjoying getting settled into a new studio, playing around with some new ideas and stretching out a little bit. That summer lights helping out with the new ideas a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I just think the the sort of like refresh in space. I'd been in my previous studio for 11 years and... That's a, such a long time. It's a really long time. Yeah. You know, I got pretty settled there. You get grandfathered in on cheap rent and mm -hmm. you just kind of stick it out. Um, but yeah, it was... A change was long overdue. The space you were in, um, like clearly kind of used to be a... a a hub for like a lot of action, I would guess. I mean, just even from going in there and seeing the murals that are like leading up into the space, it seems like a lot of artists have come through there and contributed to the space. Yeah. Uh, when it opened, it was, it was in 2012 and that was like a year after I moved here and there was just so much energy happening. There were so many artists who had recently arrived to the Bay and everybody was just really excited to like get in the mix and do murals and do shows. And this was before the art murmur got kind of blown out and appropriated by like the first Friday event. Um, yeah, there was this, this very tangible energy in Oakland at the time. And when fault line opened, it was, it was just a really big space to kind of contain all that energy. And so we, you know, had some really big group shows back then, the murals. And there was also a monthly draw night called Draw Club that for a period of time was attracting like some of the, it was just a really good cross section of Bay Area artists and was a really good time. Yeah. yeah. Those sketch nights or those draw nights really just seem to be for us. Yeah. Like I always bang on about this on my Instagram. I'm like, why? aren't you people showing up to this? You can buy art from artists whose work is very expensive yeah. and they're very Bay Area famous and you're really just being a chump by not showing up to these things. But we get then the benefits of that because I've gotten to add to my collection Yeah, at Sketch Tuesday at least. Yeah, you know, they're really fun. I would say that the when I did Sketch Tuesday years ago, I think it was probably 2015 that I did one, it felt a little bit more like that. That was like the point. For us? No, for oh, people for to come and buy work on the cheap and to be able to like peer over the artist's shoulder. There's there's something really appealing, I think, to people for as far as collectors are concerned to be able to watch it happen 
and then be able to take it home with him. Yeah. Um, there's, it's, you know, it's sort of a direct line to the artist. And back then it felt like that was a little bit more um, the point of the event. Um, and I think maybe that shifted a little bit. I don't know if they're just not attracting the number of collectors that they used to. Maybe tastes have changed a little bit in the San Francisco scene. Um, yeah. I mean, what I noticed the other night that I was there, there was an event taking place at the same time as Sketch Tuesday. And it was like a mixer for people at a company. I have no idea what kind of company it was or anything more than that. They all had name badges on and they were all still wearing their business attire. And they were like on one side of the bar from us and we were on the other and we were doing all this stuff. And I kind of paid attention to what that dynamic was going to be because I feel like if, if it was me and I was at a business thing and I saw this stuff going on, I would be interested and probably want to go over and ask some questions or find out. But it was really interesting for me to watch that like nothing happened until everyone had had like three drinks, <laughs> yeah. which I kind of get it too. Artists can be intimidating, you know, I feel yeah. like there's that factor too. But yeah, I wonder if people, do you think the people who live in San Francisco now maybe aren't as interested in art? Uh, Yeah. Um, I think as far as like the tech industry is concerned, um, you know, I think there's this idea that like these young creative sort of, or creatively minded entrepreneurs are going to be interested in art. And I think that was probably true for previous generations in the tech industry, especially for people who were around during the dot-com boom. Cause back then it was a lot scrappier. You had these startups that were legitimately coming out of people's garages and then becoming multi-million dollar companies. And I think the way the tech industry functions now has shifted where there is the, the extent to which venture capital money really defines the whole process of the startup and how it works, what kind of like people they're interfacing with and also like what their interests are, I think is really now defined by that kind of that world and that influence. Um, I also think that you, you have people in the tech industry who are like the coders and the people doing the numbers and the kind of hard work behind the scenes, but you also have a really large amount of people in sales and marketing. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the lucrative nature of this particular industry has attracted a lot of people who, if they were, you know, in their twenties back in the 1980s, they would be wall street bros. Right. Um, so yeah, I think like the the sort of finance financial <laughs> cut <laughs> the, the financial industry um, that sort of crossover with the tech industry I think really defines the culture of it now um, in ways that weren't necessarily the case twenty years ago. Do you think that there's nothing branching these two things? Do you know what I'm saying? I, I mean, I'm going to give you a for instance is that I met. Um, a financial bro who was living in my apartment complex, downtown SF. And he and I met each other coincidentally on the sidewalk. And he has now shown up to almost every single thing I have done. He's shown up to sketches. You've probably met him. Yeah. Herschel, I know you, I'm, you know you're listening right now and I'm name dropping you. And he was blown away about the things happening in San Francisco. And he's like, how would I have known? And I was like, I don't know how you would know. I mean, he's like, how do you know? And I was like, only because I'm in it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, you know, and like, even if you follow galleries, I don't think that that's your plug-in either. That's not going to give you enough of a, those are going to be for openings, but that's not what the art scene is totally about at all. 
that sounds like he has the curiosity and the interest as like a really driving factor. And right. I don't think that's necessarily the case for a lot of people. And, and, you know, I think that that applies to everyone, not just like the tech industry specifically. I think the, the way that like social media and smartphones and the internet has put everything at our fingertips now has, I think kind of, it's eroded people's capacity to be curious and to go and seek things out. And I would also say that like there, there are just particular people who are really stoked about cool things happening and really want to know about them and get plugged in with them. And those are always the people who are kind of at the leading edge of what's happening. The, those are what real art collectors are driven by. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I think about a guy who is involved with a venture capital firm in Palo Alto and he is older. He was around for the dot-com boom. Um, like he got Google money early and then split and did his own company. Um, but his family has a really extensive art collection. So he's coming from that background of already having this like jumping off point, already being really immersed in culture and understanding the value of art and, and how collecting works and how he can like interface with the art world as a collector. And I don't think a lot of people really understand that or know how to approach that world. Um, 100%. Yeah. I mean, even as a fledgling artist, I can remember showing up to Mira's gallery for a show before I had really been in very many shows myself and I didn't really know anyone and no one talked to me and it was so intimidating. And yeah. I, as a fully tattooed, you know, kind of hip looking woman was felt completely on the outside. So I can understand if people who are entering the scene who feel like they're other might be like, I don't even want to ask the questions. I don't even know what the questions are, right? And yeah. in fact, I think not knowing what the questions are can sometimes make it more interesting though. Yeah. I'd almost rather be asked a question by someone who doesn't know what. Yeah, but it's it's getting over the hump to ask the question. One hundred percent. Yeah. And that you know, those spaces can be really intimidating. And I think that's always it's always been an issue with the gallery world. Um, there's a lot of gatekeeping, there's a lot of barriers to entry, and I think generally speaking it's quite like full of itself and that that is tough for people to sort of pierce that veil and actually like really get into it when you and i were having our like pre-interview conversation you mentioned something like you had a theory about why tech people hate us do you want to get into it (laughs) yeah um you know i don't want to say this is like universally true but um i think looking at like more recent phenomena like the rise of nfts and just how incredibly ugly and tacky (laughs) so many or most of them are were um Mm -hmm. i think nfts are dead i don't know (laughs) i also i was thinking the same thing to myself i'm like we still doing that i mean by we i do not mean me but i mean like i haven't that caused such a ruckus for such a hot minute yeah well i mean last i checked the value has absolutely tanked on most of them um but, you know, if you look at the aesthetics of NFTs and you also look now more recently at AI and how there seems to be all this enthusiasm for using AI to be creative, like I'm going to use chat GPT to write a screenplay or write a novel, or I'm going to use mid journey to like visualize some weird stuff. I saw this, this one dude, he took a bunch of like really classic paintings and he thought he was like really reinventing the wheel here <laughs> by being like, Oh, look at what's beyond the frame. So he'd use, he plugged them into mid journey and Got asked it. them to, you know, extend the field of what was portrayed in the painting. So like, so what was Mona Lisa really looking at? Then? Yeah. Like the full landscape 
behind Mona Lisa or like Starry Night. That's what the it should have been what Mona Lisa was giving the eye at. You know what I'm yeah. saying? That would have been funnier. Yeah. <laughs> but like there's there's a real, I think, lack of understanding about the value of art and why that that impulse to have a computer do it for you is it's not necessarily about like it che- being cheating. It's more just them missing the point. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, in thinking about that, it occurred to me that there is a certain amount of contempt that I see from certain people within the tech world towards artists. And I think that for those individuals, they feel threatened by the role that artists play in society because they, they see themselves in that role mm-hmm. as being innovative, as disrupting the status quo, as being these creators who think outside the box, color outside the lines. Like that's so intrinsic to their, their sense of identity. Right. And I think that there's probably a little bit of insecurity at play there. And I think some, probably some jealousy and a a feeling of being threatened by the fact that artists are very firmly entrenched in that role societally. Like we have always occupied that role. And I think they recognize that and want to have the same sort of like cultural cachet that, that entails. Right. Yeah. I suspect they do within internally in a lot of the circles that they run in. Yeah. 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 And you know, that got me thinking about years ago, circa 2013 and 14 as like gentrification was really, really starting to pick up steam and really putting the crunch on a lot of creative people in the Bay area. Uh, I and others started to have these conversations about, okay, how do we like interface with the tech world and, the idea was like, we're going to educate them on the value of art collecting so that we can get a little slice of that money, you know, make things a bit easier for ourselves, possibly enrich their sort of cultural experience at the same time. And so we were floating ideas of like having like a cocktail hour at a gallery and having someone do basically a talk and, you know, explain the value of collecting art, explain the particular work in the show to these folks from the tech industry and be like, this is cool. This is why you should buy it. This is why being an art collector is a cool thing you can do. Um, and looking back on that now, I do think that it was a little naive at the time to to believe like, oh, if we just like show them why this stuff is great, then right. they'll like give us money and we'll be able to afford to live here. Um, we have trouble affording to live here, but I also think at the same time, this it's such an interesting double-edged sword, I think, is, mm-hmm. is that... I make money off the tech industry. I've done plenty of large scale work for and installations at large places downtown San Francisco. And I also venture to say that artists here, we have an ability financially, even though it's so expensive to live here, we have the ability to do pretty financially well here. Mm-hmm. If we can get into that league of, of installing work for these people or being, because all, all of their places have artwork now mm-hmm. that that in fact one upping each other in that way seemed to be a big part of their game. Yeah. I mean, you can trace that all the way back to the foundation of Facebook and that David Cho mural, mm-hmm. um, that, that kind of got enshrined in the like legend of the tech industry and how it interacts with the art world. Um, and so, yeah, I think like it, the, you know, the lobby mural is part of like the package for, a shiny new tech office. Mm-hmm. You know, you have like the snack bar, the catered meals, the gym on site, mm-hmm. the weird little pods that you can go in for your conference calls. Mm-hmm. And then you have a cool mural in the hallway or the lobby. Um, 
And, you know, that is really good for us. And I think it is important for us to interface with that world and, you know, not necessarily be like confrontational about it because obviously they're writing us a check, but like just be like, Hey, you know, we're here. Like we are coming from a different place than you. We're coming at this with a different perspective and it's valuable to share those perspectives with each other. Yeah, I'm not sure their interest extends that far, as you said before. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it depends. You know, I, I don't think that we can really paint this industry with, like, a broad brush and say it's all the same. I think the culture at a given company is different um, from one company to the next. Um, that I could totally agree with. Yeah. I also just think that, yeah, again, I mean, you're you're talking about the negativity of, of wanting to, like, explain this or whatever, but... I went and helped uh, my friend Cybot do an installation at the Google campus in Mountain View. And there were so many badass artists there. And I was like, they're all our friends. But I was just like, do these people even know? Like, I would be so hyped to walk into a Chad Hasagawa mural. And then there's fucking, you know, there was just, and Emily Fromm was there. And um, Amanda Lynn had a a lot of, like, large work. And Mm -hmm. now I'm just going to, like, Plank, a bunch of other artists who were there who were so awesome. But there was, it was just a lot of really awesome work. And I was like, oh man, these people don't even know, you know? (laughs) And it did come and bum me out because like, for instance, that Amanda Lynn piece, she did these pillars in the middle and they're really, really tall or whatever. And she had to get a lift and she drove the lift in there. If you saw the doors that she had to do that from, the skill needed to drive a lift that large through that door already is the, one of the most badass things I've ever seen. Like, yeah. I would have had to absolutely have someone professional, quote unquote, do that for me. Like, yeah. <laughs> no way. No way. She's just being a badass. Yeah. Probably has good liability insurance too. That too, but also just a lot of skill. Yeah. 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 You know, I think it, I did their artist in residency program and painted a mural um, on not the main campus, but like a separate Google campus in Mountain View. And it was a really great experience. A lot of people were really stoked on it. They were really interested in the process. Um, And I think it sort of depends on like what department they're working in in a lot right. of ways i think like the people who are maybe more on the social media the marketing side of things and maybe even like management are going to be a little bit more interested in what's happening than the engineers i think like a lot of these folks are probably very very right brain and very um right it's the right brain yeah or left brain I no forget. i think right brain is correct yeah for yeah just a lot more analytical, a lot more interested in in things that aren't that aren't artsy and weird. And well, it's almost like, but it's different though. But I'm dating someone who is a creator, but what he and I think art is is really different. Yeah, and it's so fun. Yeah, you know. But like, yeah, he's just he makes very very small things, and he mm-hmm. makes a lot of things digitally. And I feel like I would break all those with my Hulk hands and yeah. I only create in the real world because I can't use a computer. So yeah. I don't know. It's just, but I do get what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Um, what did you do in your residency? Did you go there every day to Mountain View? So they were like, oh, you can ride the Google bus and, you know, commute in. And you like, got the insider review on the Google bus? What happens on that thing? Well, I didn't ride it because oh, gosh, I wasn't it. trying to. Do You're it. boycotting. No, it was just a, it was just <laughs> logistics. You know, oh, okay. I had a week to do this mural and I didn't want to waste two or more hours a day sitting in traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually got an Airbnb and it, it was kind of like a legit residency for the week. You know, Yeah. I was, you know, I worked probably 10, 12 hour days 
five days straight. Just went to the Airbnb. And That's slept. what you got to do. I, yeah. Part of the thing that is really, I the Bay Area traffic, if it's more than an hour away, I'm like, I got to figure out how to stay because I cannot yeah. do this. I cannot sit on this highway after a full day of painting. Like, yeah. I just, it's so I terrible. Also, I, I didn't have a car back then. And so this actually would be a good segue into yes. the next topic. But yeah, so like getting there is a pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. It was like BART to Fremont, take a bus across the bridge. Yeah. And then bike from Palo Alto to the campus in Mountain View. No, that's just, it's a hard no. Yeah. We were also talking about, I have not really talked about with anyone who also started their mural career without a car, but you did. Yeah. And it's, I love that because I was so, it makes me laugh now because I think that the better the more experience you get and the better you do or whatever, like sometimes you're like, no, I won't, I won't paint for that amount of money now. Or mm-hmm. no, I'm not going to ride the bus to that. And it's just like, but I love like my origin story is I was going to do anything to get that mural. Yeah. Totally. Fuck yes. I'm going on the BART with this six foot ladder. And my uh, aunt gave me her vintage, like her North face backpacking backpack from the 1970s that she used to travel around. She yeah. gave to me as a gift. And then I would just stack it fucking full of spray paint and brushes mm-hmm. and water and whatever and just be like, da-da-da, yeah. on the BART. <laughs> yeah. And then clients would sometimes come pick me up from the BART oh, so nice. I could paint. Yeah. 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 For me, it was always like BART and bike. Or after I got a little too uncomfortable taking BART under the, the bay yeah. to switch to the ferry. Oh. Ferry is where it's at. I haven't been on the ferry since I drank. Like I would drink when I discovered the ferry and there's there's a bar on the ferry i was like this is the only way to fly yes hello (laughs) (laughs) and i've actually never been back on it since then because i also have like um mythology about sharks Mm. which isn't really mythology because there's definitely fucking sharks in the bay yeah and it annoys me when people say that there's not but um yeah i'm just pretty sure i just don't do the ocean that's fair it's okay yeah the ocean isn't missing me or anything like that I mean, I will say it's the most relaxing way to get to the city and back. Um, I want to do it. The ferry is really far from the ocean, like height-wise. Like, I'm going to be pretty safe. Yeah. Sharks don't jump. We know this. Yeah. That far. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you know, they're not going to hop onto the boat and, <laughs> and get you. <laughs> but did you see the shark? That, or Like, you know, the sea lions and stuff at Alcatraz will sometimes hop on the back of the ferry, mm-hmm. and there will be sharks right underneath there and shit. Yeah. <sighs> I'm going to just have to think about it for a while. It makes me <laughs> nervous. <laughs> I like, you know, I'm just someone who in my youth, like I read, um, my dad gave me all the books that he liked to read. And so Peter Benchley was something I grew up with and he wrote Jaws. Okay. And he also wrote a lot of other books about sea creatures and things. Mm-hmm. And not all of them were real, but I was pretty young when I was reading these books. Like they did a thing to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love living next to the ocean, but the open ocean is terrifying. It really is. Yeah. Also, what was that? Uh, what was that movie? Was it called Open Water? The one where they shot it, where it was like really low budget, and there it's two people whose boats capsize and they're out there, and then one of them dies, and then it's just the other one out there for like another. You don't know what I'm talking about. Well, that sounds terrifying. And so also, yeah, nightmare yeah. shit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> when we, all right, we were talking about fault line at the beginning, and like mm-hmm. you just, so you, first I want to know why you moved to the Bay, but you knew you were going to move to the Bay and make art because you were already doing it. Is that how that worked? Yeah, I, um, I grew up in southern New Mexico and then went up to Albuquerque for college, uh, went to UNM and got a BFA there and graduated in 2008. 
And at that point I was like, okay, I'm going to, going to split head somewhere new. And there's this running joke that the, the state motto in New Mexico is the land of enchantment and everyone calls it the land of entrapment because you just <laughs> get stuck there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really cheap to live there. There's a very different pace of life than a lot of other places. And it does have this sort of like vortex quality that kind of like sucks you in. Um, how let's let's stay in that for a second before we do how you moved a bit because i want to know how your childhood was i love to know about people's childhood yeah it's my favorite but were you in a house with art yeah did your your parents had an art collection and things like that or they Mm -hmm. are artists yeah both okay tell me more yeah they had like a, a modest collection we didn't have anything fancy or anything um but yeah my my dad he went to the philadelphia academy of art and got like a very, very traditional academy style art education. So like first year, they're only drawing from casts and like still lifes. You don't even get to like paint from a model in the second year. Um, so it's this very rigorous, very old school approach. Um, and my mom, she's always made art. She is also like a seamstress and does weaving and like other kinds of fiber art nice. and worked as an elementary art teacher um, until she retired. So yeah, they're they're super plugged in mm-hmm. with that world and also just understand the value of art and have always been really supportive of me pursuing that path. That's great. You did not have parents who were like, it's not an option to be an artist or yeah. what are you really going to do when you grow up? Yeah, I'm, I'm like really, really privileged in that regard to they're not only like supportive of it, but also like, you know, I know other like I have friends who their parents aren't they just don't understand it. Mm-hmm. They might, they might not be opposed to it, but they're like, yeah, you know, you just like paint your pictures. I don't really, mm-hmm. I don't get it. Like my parents totally get it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like my dad loves to ask me like technical questions about my process and like he gets really excited about that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, being able to like connect with them on that and also know that they understand the value of the path that I'm on is really, really amazing. It's pretty badass. Yeah. yeah my parents, I wouldn't say discourage me at all, but they were so afraid that um, they just want me to be secure. You know what I'm saying? They don't want me to have to struggle. Yeah. You know, I think there's like a bit of a, a double standard there for women that that men who want to pursue an art career aren't necessarily subjected to by their parents. Because I've heard similar things from women. Know, friends who are artists. Yeah. 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 Like, how are we going to make it? Or Yeah. Yeah. And well, hopefully we find a rich art husband, right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm looking for mine. That's so. the guy I know, right? Where <laughs> yeah. these are husbands yeah. at? Oh my gosh. You had kind of a difficult childhood. Um, yes, no. There was th- things that happened that made it harder. I mean, I guess in like relative terms. Um, like, I definitely had like a comfortable middle class upbringing. I don't, I don't think we were ever really in financial strains or that sort of difficulty you know like my I would say my family was like lower middle class when I was younger and then you know as I just were able to build wealth and have a stable lifestyle that we've moved to like middle middle class and so are you an only child no I have a a younger brother oh yeah what's younger brother's name his name is Michael Michael yeah where is he he lives in Lafayette Colorado outside of Boulder shut the fuck up yeah you know that's where I hail from right oh really there specifically Almost all of my drinking, using, partying, and debauchery happened in Boulder, Colorado. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. 
I've done a couple of murals in Boulder. It's it's a fun town. Oh my god! Did you have any drinks there? Yeah. Did you go to the Sundown Saloon? No. It's like a basement bar that smells really distinctively. It's mm, actually maybe that sounds kind of familiar. I mean, I think it's the best bar in Boulder, and I also literally lived there for a decade. Yeah, yeah. And it also there used to be a smoking room when those things were still legal, mm-hmm. and um, you'd come back home from it, and you'd have to like quarantine your outfit. Like you would smell like the whole place smelled not just like smoke, but like the very specific like barf and beer smell that long term bars smell like. <laughs> When I was living in Albuquerque, I played in bands for a while, and right when I started playing music, probably six months after, they banned smoking in bars. And there was there was one particular venue called Burt's Tiki Lounge, and it was they never had a cover. Um, it was where all the college students went. It was also like a it was a sort of like entry level live music venue. So like if you were a band just starting out, mm-hmm. that would be a great place to get a show. Burt's Tiki Bar. Burt's Tiki Lounge. <laughs> And so, you know, all of the like tiki crap everywhere. Right. Yeah. But I remember the first time we showed up there to play a show after the smoking ban had been enacted and we walked in the door and we're just like, what the fuck is that smell? Right. Because it was the smell under the smoke smell. Yeah. It had to be masked completely (laughs) by that. Yeah. That that same like really vile, Mm -hmm. sour barf, beer. It'll never come out no matter how much fabuloso you fucking use. Yeah. It's there for forever. Yeah. Okay, so you came from an art family and you moved to SF specifically because you were like, I want to be a part of that scene. Well, I moved to Oakland. Um, never lived in SF. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Oakland. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, when I came out here to visit for the first time, I was like, damn, San Francisco is like awesome, but it's just a little too dense for me. Mm-hmm. And so when I visited Oakland, I was like, oh, okay, there's a bit more elbow room here. And like, if you've ever been to New Mexico, it's a really like wide open, expansive kind of place. Um, the skies are gigantic and there's just a lot of open space and kind of room to breathe. And so I felt a lot more at home in Oakland, having a bit more like wiggle room in that way. Um, but basically, I I kicked around Albuquerque for a few more years after finishing college and just kind of realized that I was sort of hitting the ceiling as far as creative opportunities there. And was also just feeling burned out on living there, was feeling uninspired and was ready for a change. And I was actually thinking about Philly mm-hmm. and then went out there for a summer. And my family, my extended family all lives out there. My parents are both from Pennsylvania. And so we would always go visit in the summertime. And one of those visits, I like took my bike with me just to see what it was like biking around mm-hmm. in Philly in July. And mm-hmm. I was like, nah, uh-huh. I'm good. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've actually never been to Philly, yeah. but a lot of my friends who are sober now talk about what Philly was like when they were out. Yeah. It, it seems intense. Yeah, if you were like grimier and not interested in doing the New York thing. Precisely. It was, yeah, it was yes. the place to be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you're interested in doing meth, but you weren't interested in doing it in a, in a gigantic city, you go to Philly. Yeah. You're right, perfect. Okay. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> Did you know people out here? Um, a, a few people, yeah. Okay, so you visited and you were like, this is what's up. Mm-hmm. And then you just moved and got a place at Fault Line. Yeah. God, I love it when I hear about landings like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was the whole the whole experience was kind of an interesting landing because I, I moved out here in the fall of 2011 and was looking for housing for about a month and had just signed a lease on an apartment and was actually on my way to go celebrate with some friends and got creamed by a drunk driver who 
who ran a red light and T-boned me. I was on my bike. Oh, my God. She was going about 40 miles an hour, probably, and then fled the scene. Oh. Yeah. Welcome to Oakland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, <laughs> it's so funny you say that because, like, by our our new art space, there's only one place to get coffee, and it's a Starbucks, and it's, like, on Embarcadero. Do you know what I'm talking about? In mm-hmm. a little, like, thing. And sometimes I will go there, and every time I go there... It's like once a week. I'm like, I need a coffee before I go home. So I'm going there. And once a week, there's some people freaking out in the parking lot there because all their shit got stolen. And I'm like, why is no one telling you people what is up? Like, how are you getting here and leaving stuff in your car? Who's not telling you? It's so like, you know what I'm saying? It's just like, yeah, it's a scene everywhere. And I'm like, fuck, even at motels and stuff or they're not like, isn't there signs everywhere that says don't leave? There's literally signs everywhere that says don't leave stuff in your car. Yeah. And I mean, this is not like an isolated Bay Area phenomenon. This happens in every big city. 100%. And, you know, like, I I am glad that I lived in Albuquerque before I came here because when I moved here, I was like, what is all the fucking hype about? Like, right. It's chill. Like, And, you know, Albuquerque has a different character as a city. I think it is, generally speaking, a bit more antagonistic. Definitely mm-hmm. very gritty mm-hmm. um, because it's the only city like real metro area in New Mexico. I think there's there's a tendency for people to like try really hard mm-hmm. there um, for better or for worse. The, the, to put on the tough guy thing? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, so when I moved here, I was like, oh, this is chill. You know, I don't have people trying to like run me off the road on my bike. Right. They're not like throwing beer cans at me. It's not like you go downtown and there's you know, a one in five chance you might potentially get in a fight with someone. Yeah. yeah. I feel like my my take on Oakland my first year here is it's more relaxing than San Francisco for me. Yeah, definitely. In general. The only thing, I, like I've unlocked a new fear, which is getting shot while I'm driving on the highway. That seems to happen here more than it does in San Francisco. So that's my new. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I don't, I don't really get with the like crime wave paranoia, but that is something that seems to be happening a lot. Oh, like a lot. And yeah. I'm just like, Jesus I know. Christ, can you all just chill? I know. <laughs> just fucking don't do it. Why? Why yeah. driving and shooting? Yeah. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many things that we kind of like touched on in our first conversation that I wanted to go back to. And then I just forgot. I, oh, yes, I remember now. So we were talking about tech people and how they might hate us because of like the fact that we get to like, I don't know, make a political stance or our work can be like, what were you saying exactly about that? I think like if you look at what role the artist plays in society, they have always been someone who is outside of the mainstream. Mm -hmm. They have always challenged the status quo. They've always come up with new ideas, new techniques, new styles. They're sort of at the leading edge of like creative development. And I think like, and maybe like specifying this is more like the, the CEO startup founder mentality versus the sort of like garden variety tech person. Right. Um, I think that they see themselves in that way. You know, there's that slogan of like, go fast and break things, the disruptive industry because they walk into their borders without shoes on or something well i mean really what they're doing is just repackaging the same old capitalism in like a shiny new box um but yeah i think that there's there's so much emphasis on innovation in the tech industry and i think like the 
the people at the top of the pyramid really do see themselves as like a gift to humanity. Right. Um, and I think to the extent that artists see themselves similarly, right. You know, they're 100%. Yeah. We cannot discount that. That yeah. is truth. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think there's some parallels there. Yes. Probably some like built in competition as well. Um, do yeah. you think artists have a role? Like, do you think we have a responsibility to have a message behind our art? Mm. Yes and no. You know, I don't I don't think that all art needs to be overtly political. I think, you know, some people can make work in that vein that feels really authentic and also is a really effective way of reaching people and educating them and opening their minds to what other people are experiencing, kind of pulling back the curtain on these these really fucked up structural inequities that define the world that we live in. I think it's a really, really powerful tool for that. Um, but I don't think that everyone needs to make art that way. And I think there is definitely something to be said for making work that is just sort of intrinsically beautiful and the value that that holds in a world that is very, very commodity driven. Right. Um, and also as, as the internet like really sort of changes the way that we interact with the world and the way that our attention spans work, I think making making artwork that forces people to slow down and really take something in and spend some time with an individual piece of art, I think in a sense that does have its own sort of political value in that it, it pulls us out of the rat race for a second. Right. It pulls us out of this world where so much of our aesthetic experience is driven by advertising. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I think it, it is just sort of a nice a nice break from all of that. And I think that there is value in that. And I also think that, you know, this idea of the personal is political is really important. And people who are making work that is deeply personal and speaking to their own experience, that also has its own kind of impact as well. Where do you fall? Where does your art fall on that spectrum? Um, I think some of my older work was definitely the latter. It was much more personal. Um, but starting in about, I mean, this is so cliche but you know after trump got elected i was like okay i'm gonna make political art like everybody else but i was also looking... i don't know i don't think that at all though yeah. i don't think that's cliche yeah yeah i mean i think that that brought out really strong reactions in people i think it did as well and i think it led to a lot of really interesting and really insightful and really impactful work and it also led to a lot of like really trite work where people were essentially appropriating the language of protest and ways right. that felt kind of gross. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or just tacky and corny and like the, the, like people's like desire to make all this work of Trump in his likeness because they're making fun of him or something. I'm like, the dude is a narcissist. So right. even if this is a negative depiction of him, you're still fueling his own inflated ego. Right. Like, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and we don't need to see his ugly ass face <laughs> anymore than we already do so we might see him again yeah. we'll see <laughs> i know i'm blessedly like kind of out of the loop on that one hmm. i know what i want to talk about okay you have a story to tell me and the story is about art murmur and i don't know about it okay um is this kind of like a white wall story? Not really. Okay. It's it's more like a sort of the changes of the past 10 years writ large 
and small kind of story. Um, well, you've been here for a decade. Yeah. So you've been here to see it. Yeah. Yeah, I moved here in 2011, and by 2012, I think we had sort of reached not necessarily critical mass, but it felt like there was a lot of artists moving here. Um, the, the word had gotten out, you know, it was still cheap to live here. Um, there was a lot of really cool shit happening, and it was attracting a lot of people, and there was a really vibrant scene. Everyone was, like, really excited to get out and, like, paint murals and do shows, and and yeah, there was just a very, like, tangible energy there, and at the time, the Art Murmur was still like a pretty small, scrappy event that was put on entirely by the galleries in what is now called like the Uptown neighborhood. Okay. So Telegraph, in, in between Telegraph and Broadway, um, 20, 26th Street down to 23rd is where, when I got here, a lot of it was centered around that area. Um, and that is in large part due to the original founding galleries of the art murmur being kind of centralized in that neighborhood. Um, so like Mama Buzz, which is now uh, Beery Land on Telegraph and Rock, Paper, Scissors are, they were the last two that were still in existence when I moved here. Um, and if I remember right, the art murmur was started in 2005 or maybe it was a little bit later. Um, I'm sure some old head is going to be like, this is totally wrong. But you know you can. Correct this is it. not the podcast for fact checking. Yeah. Where this is an opinions podcast. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or sometimes I'll fact check the most random thing, like Emily and I wanted to know the difference between submarines and hoagies. That was our big fact check. What was it? There difference? is no. It's it's regional. Yeah, it's it's, it's regional dialect. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. But we wanted. We had to know. It was a burning question. Yeah. Yeah. But no, this is no one's going to go back on this. And, All right. So it's kind of like a an an art walk, like a first. Thursday or first Friday? It was first Friday. Okay. All the galleries would open and then people would just set up on the sidewalks um, on those side streets in between Telegraph and Broadway. And for a period of time, I would say like 2000, from my experience getting here, 2012 through 2014 or so, you could, you could just like bum rush the spot, lay out a blanket, put out your work, and you could make a really good amount of money. You could make rent in a night sometimes Sick. if you were lucky. Um, wow. Because at the time, it the word had gotten out about this cool, scrappy little event. It had been going on long enough where the sort of more established Bay Area art world had taken notice of it. And collectors and enthusiasts knew it was a place you could go to see kind of exciting, young, fresh work. Mm-hmm. And to see it in a way that was really devoid of any pretension, it was really accessible and fun and and yeah, just at the time, you know, it still had that really sort of scrappy DIY vibe to it. Um, so that that hype continued to build through 2013. And, uh, you know, I want to say this is this was summer of 2013 when this happened. It may have been the following year. But things just got to get, like, things got really popular. Mm-hmm. And the the number of people that was coming out could no longer be contained by the side streets. And so it began to spill out on the telegraph. Vendors were setting up, people were partying. And that momentum just continued to the point where like, it was, I think a July first Friday, there was probably like two or 300 kids just hanging out in the middle of telegraph, <laughs> blocking traffic, right. drinking tall cans, catching tags on everything. Mm-hmm. And it was just fucking mayhem. And I remember at the time thinking like, 
this is fun and exciting, but also like a little unnerving. Yeah. Um, Cause it did, you did start to feel that sort of like undercurrent of like the mob mentality mm-hmm. at play. And you know, when you get a bunch of graffiti writers together and add boots to the mix, mm-hmm. we all know what happens. Yeah, exactly. And so this was going on. The city was like, Ooh, this is a bit of a liability for us, but also like we're really trying to build on our cultural capital and make Oakland a destination city for tourism. They were trying to, you know, they're never going to compete with San Francisco, but trying to put themselves on a map mm-hmm. in, in a similar way. And so they're like, okay, how can we, how can we find a solution or a compromise to the situation that makes everyone happy? And so they begin to work closely with the galleries who were part of the Art Murmur Association to close off the side streets to pedestrian traffic. And that was sort of the origin of the street fair aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And over time, that just kind of grew and grew. But as it grew, it became less and less about the art and more and more about the party. Right. To the point where it reached a tipping point, probably two or three years later, where the art galleries were like, this isn't working for us. Yeah. Our collectors don't want to come out on first Fridays anymore because there's just a bunch of yahoos drinking beer and running Mm -hmm. around and, and having observed it enough, you would see this thing where people weren't actually spending any time with the art. It was just this thing you did where you go up and down each street, Mm -hmm. go in and out each gallery, just kind of give everything a glance and like keep going. Yep. And in my sort of like observations there, I began to notice a lot more people who were very clearly from the suburbs, who were very clearly there to be like, let's go drink on the street in Oakland and uh-huh. feel real edgy and cool. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, as as so many cool, interesting, scrappy DIY kind of things do, it went that route. You know, it gets appropriated, it gets commodified, and then loses all of its sort of revolutionary zeal. Yeah. Um And yeah, that's basically what happened. And so now what you have on Telegraph is essentially like the state fair. Yeah, it's not what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. And what's really interesting about that is that there is the First Friday organization and then the Art Murmur Association or organization. And Mm -hmm. these are separate entities that have been at odds with each other at varying times over the past decade or so. What's there to be at odds over? Um, The direction of the event, the sort of crowds it's attracting, the what they're marketing it as, um, the way that the event functions being detrimental to the work of the galleries. Um, It's just not a conducive environment for people to come and look at art, for one, but to buy it. And that was like such an important aspect about the art murmur was that, you know, we were talking about making art collecting more accessible to people in those sort of like halcyon days of it. That's really what the value was. Mm-hmm. I mean, also to connect with people and do all that good stuff. But like people could go there. Talk to the artist. Talk to the artist. And hear some, the artist. Yeah. And <laughs> see some cool shit mm-hmm. and buy it. And in that way, everybody's happy. You know, you don't necessarily have that, that delay with a gallery show where you like, I'm like, I'm going to buy that. But then a month passes and like, you know, there's a level of instant gratification there that I think was, it made first time art buyers a lot more inclined to engage and to buy art. 100%. I'm still irritated that I buy art and then I have to wait till the show closes till I get it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the price points were really accessible as well. And so it was just, it was a really like cool way to kind of interface with people who were interested in art and 
for a period of time, it was the place to like go do that in the East Bay. Um, and as the street party grew, the Art Murmur Association was trying to sort of respond to that. And something that they started doing was opening the galleries on that Saturday. Mm-hmm. And it was they called it the Saturday Stroll. And the whole push for that was to be like, hey, you used to enjoy the the art murmur but hate it now because of all these assholes like look what we have clogging up the streets yes we'll come (laughs) out on saturday afternoon they'll all be too hungover to come back yeah (laughs) so is that still going on is this how they've now changed i mean they're still open on first fridays but i've noticed now a lot of the galleries tend to close earlier um they're usually done by eight what's your personal relationship with galleries these days meaning like how do you feel about it? Who are you showing with? How are you making decisions about what you're doing? You know, I have really mixed feelings about that. Um, there, you know, I, I enjoy doing gallery shows. I really like the sort of like, I like the pressure of the deadline being like in the cave and then you come out of the cave mm-hmm. and you're like, hello, look at all this stuff that I did. <laughs> yes. Isn't it great? Let's have a party. Also, I love humans. I, it's so nice to see you. Yeah, you're kind of like blinking <laughs> in the light. Like, oh God, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, that's great. I think to a certain extent, it's a bit like a performance that you've been rehearsing for the last like six months to a year. Um, so getting to do that is really fun and enjoyable. Um, though... You know, it's. I think it's hard to find galleries that are really earning their commission in the way that they should be. I could not agree more. It's yeah. getting really tough for me to do more than one or two small pieces at shows that take 50%, or mm-hmm. galleries that take 50%. Yeah. The galleries that I show at that I will put my big work in and be stoked on are the people who have opened grassroots galleries in the Tenderloin who are my friends and I want them to take that 30%. Mm-hmm. I'm stoked on them having it. Yeah. 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 And you know, like as far as the commission is concerned, like I, the 50% doesn't bother me with the caveat that like if the gallery is really doing the work, if that particular sale wouldn't have happened without them mm-hmm. acting as the intermediary, mm-hmm. And, you know, you factor in the cost of overhead, cost of promoting the show, the cost of paying their staff to write the press release, to help you with the install. You know, there's a lot of, like, expenses involved in, like, the sort of realities of the business of art. I respect that. But I don't see enough galleries really, like, pulling their weight in that regard. And I think a lot of that is there's a bit of a disconnect between being enthusiastic about art and wanting to show it and actually understanding the business of art and the necessity to build relationships with collectors, how to maintain those relationships Mm -hmm. and how to steer particular collectors to particular shows, being really plugged in with your collector base and understanding where their taste lies right? and being selective about who you're really targeting for a given show. So like, say, you know, a collector who really likes a specific kind of work, you're showing that specific kind of work, you're going to be reaching out to them a lot more than other people in the collector base. And I, like that, that level of proactive pursuit of sales doesn't seem to be happening the way that I think it should be with most galleries. Right. Yeah. Just because what is there, is it happening? Are there too many shows? There's too many things like they can't keep up. It isn't like the time that they used to be able to spend because there's the internet and we're doing things on Instagram and like, what do you, why do you think that is? Cause what I see on my end is 
there will be like a flyer for the show, a flyer two or three, you know, and um, maybe like a little blurb of your bio or whatever. But like that's kind of the extent of it. Mm -hmm. And I can do that. Yeah. Yeah. I think the galleries that are really earning that commission are the ones who are again, just being like, okay, we're showing some like figurative work. We know so-and-so really likes this style of work. So we're really going to like push them hard to come out to the show. We're going to push the collector's preview. We're going to reach out to them even before then and be like, hey, this is the show we have coming up. There's a couple of pieces in this body of work that I think you would really like. I want to share these with you before anyone else sees them. Um, That really like proactive effort and the the cultivating of like individual relationships with collectors yeah that's like it's an old it's like it's a long-term old school thing yeah yeah and you know to in defense of people who are running galleries who are maybe not really plugged in in that way like it is hard to to cultivate like a whole spread of collectors that you have relationships with and to maintain those relationships you know like you have to know a lot of rich people. 100%. And maybe basically. they don't always really need to because some of those galleries are taking care of themselves because they're actually not catering to those people. Yeah. They're for other people Yeah, who are going to come and spend that money. They're definitely not in that price point, but it's yeah. still. But yeah, I mean, that, that does sort of get into a numbers game, you know? Like if you have like this scrappy little gallery, like, and you know, how many small works do you need to sell every month to actually cover rent, right. pay your employees, um, and maybe like take home a little, little something at the end of the day. Um, cause it is a business. And like, I think people running galleries shouldn't be, shouldn't approach it like a charity case, you know, like they should, they should be in it to make money. Right. Not expressly, you know, that's part of it. But I think the, the lack of a real tangible business acumen on the part of gallery owners is part of the issue here. And that's tricky because not everyone is good at that. And I think actually, if you look hard, there's a very small number of galleries that are being run by people who have a really well-developed business acumen and are also not like predatory assholes about it. Right. Um, that brings me to such an well. That's so funny that you perfect say that. segue. Well, it's, it's actually not a segue. Well, it's something that I w- wanted to talk about with you, and we'll be talking about with like our fellow um, artists. But just having some idea of what I personally would like art shows to look like for us, mm-hmm. but also um, if I had my own like mission associated with my artwork it would just be that I have some causes that I feel really strongly about and it doesn't it's tied to me personally but um yeah I was kind of just mulling about ideas about how we could or should show art at our new art space and in our new like art complex and Mm -hmm. what would make it interesting because I'm always like what I'm interested in is how do we become intrinsic to the community more so than something you and I were talking about, this egotistical thing, like you all need us and you're welcome. Mm-hmm. You know, this like I've blessed your alleyway with my art and yeah. <laughs> everyone, hello. Yeah, like how do we make ourselves essential in, in ways like how can we give back? How do we become, how does it become harder for people to take from us? That's something I'm really interested in because mm-hmm. like part of the plight of artists in the Bay and I'm sure everywhere is places get gentrified and we get kicked out after it becomes cool or whatever. So I'm interested in kind of a lesson that I learned from 
my last space that I was in, when I, when I and a couple of the art, other artists were trying to save it, I learned some really valuable things. And one of those things was if you want to like hold on to what you have or whatever, then you have to give back. And I was like, yeah, mm-hmm. that makes sense to me. You know, like you can't just be here in a sense existing just because you want to or whatever and because you have a right to, but what are you doing for the community at large? Mm-hmm. So I'm genuinely interested in what us as a community, us little band of artists, like what we will be interested in doing. Cause I don't want to just be this enclave of like 10 artists sitting in that brick building. Yeah. Holding parties once in a while. Yeah. That's not that very fun to me personally. Like I want to hold parties, but I want us to be like engaged in something. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of ideas about that. But one of the ideas is I was thinking that, I mean, what if we hold our own shows where we get to keep, like there is no gallery fee because we're there and we pay rent on that place. But mm-hmm. like, what if each one of our shows has a cause behind it where we give 10% of the entire show to that thing? Mm-hmm. Does that make it more interesting or juicy or like, I don't know, like do No, I mean, I think that's sort of like a good baseline. Um, I think, you know, not every show has to have a donation component, but I think like if you're coming into something with the intent of selling a lot of artwork, um, I think that is a really good way to plug yourself into the community and give something back. Um, I think education is a really like crucial component there. Um, You know, I I think a lot about like, and you know, this sort of goes back to the, the history of the art murmur. Rock, Paper, Scissors Collective um, was the last of the founding members of the Art Murmur to be gentrified out of that neighborhood. And like you said, this is a really classic story where like the artists and the weirdos and the creative people are often at the leading edge of taking these really sort of ignored or neglected areas. They move in because it's cheap. They make cool shit happen there. And in the eyes of real estate development and other sort of more established status quo powers, they, they create value in these places. But then of course they get kicked out once that value is noticed. And then the, the desire to capture that value by these, the the status quo powers that, that actually happens. Um, But, you know, RPS is still around. They're not in the same neighborhood they were, unfortunately, but they're close by and they have a really good space. Um, and they're doing a lot of really good programming, a lot of workshops, a lot of more sort of open call community oriented shows. Um, and I think that's like a really good way for us as artists to give something back is to actually share our knowledge and skills with people and to show them that art making is something that is accessible to Mm -hmm. everyone. It is not this magical thing, you know, like, Something that I hear so much from people who are not artists is like, oh my gosh, you're so talented. And I think there's a a sort of disconnect there in terms of how people perceive what it takes to make art. Mm -hmm. Um, Because yeah, like talent is important or whatever, but really it's about like the skills and those. You can learn talent. Talent can be learned. Yeah. All all that comes from hard work. Mm -hmm. And I think like it's not this sort of genetic lottery that you're like blessed with the the magical ability and then everything else falls into place totally um and so i think like having these these workshops that really enable you to share your process and your practice with others and to sort of educate them in the way that you approach art making is a really really good way to give back and also to like 
pull back the curtain to demystify the whole process. It's like you just are in my brain because that's another one of the things I'm going to bring up on our on the agenda. To yeah. put all capitals agendas. Yeah. I want us to do classes. Mm-hmm. I think each artist should just take. I mean, I haven't figured out how to do it, but that once every few months we would each of us has a class of some sort, and because it'll be fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had an eight-year-old in my studio playing with spray paint for the first time, and it was so fun to watch him go ham. He yeah. made an awesome painting, too. Yeah. It's now in my studio. I love it. Yeah. yeah. And I was just like, this is so great. That kid doesn't care about the rules. Mm-mm. I showed him how to use all the different caps in which each one does, and then I showed him how to clear the cap, and then I just backed away because he was like in a cloud of like... <laughs> I mean, he had his respirator on. Okay, I had the good. fan and all the things on. That's but great. yeah, he was going ham. It was really, it was fun. And I was like, this, yeah, this would be a good time. Well, you know, that's the thing with kids is that like every child is an artist. And most children or all children, generally speaking, don't have this weird hang up about making art. As in like, oh, that's not a thing that I can do because I'm just a regular person. Like I'm not an artist. Right. And there's, there's this weird, like, age, you know, maybe it's around 12, 13, maybe it's a little bit earlier, where that sort of, that idea of themselves as people who can create gets conditioned out of them. And it's, like, it's such a fucking tragedy because, you know, you have, like, a, legions of adults in the world who, when they were kids, really enjoyed to draw or paint or work with clay or make music or do all these things that they don't do anymore. Because it's not, you know, we don't have time because of this fucking rat race, because they don't feel like they're good enough to pursue it as a career. Commodification, right? It's just like either can we not do something for fun? It has to be good enough to sell. Yeah. That's the thing. Mm -hmm. But also my experience, I had a really short experience taking art classes in college. I didn't make art in high school. And then it never occurred to me to pursue art in college. Like that never, I don't know. It's not that my parents said no, but it just like there in my family, it was um, about hard work and intelligence. And so I kind of wanted to be a lawyer like my dad was Mm -hmm. and do something very smart. And if anyone's been listening to my story, everyone knows that my addiction caught up with me faster than my college career could. But, um, I, I dropped out of college at one point, and then one point I went back for a semester. I tried to pull it back together for a short time, and I took an art class. And I was like, maybe like that will be... I mean, I loved art. That never changed, but I just didn't think that I could do it or was good enough to do it. And mm-hmm. that art class totally proved what my worst fears about myself were, which was just like, you were kind of talking about how your dad, when the school that he went to, like they were only drawing for the first year or whatever off cast. I have no have any fucking idea what happens in art school. I don't know half of the the verbiage that goes along with it. I feel like such an idiot when anyone talks about it. But in the art class I was taking, um, we did a couple things, and a lot of it was just figure drawing or figurative drawing. Period. Mm-hmm. And I can't, or I'm not talented in that way. And so, like, I was just like, and there was people, and they're doing amazing drawings. Yeah. And I was just like, I always knew you were a piece of shit to myself. <laughs> I was just like. Yeah, this is like, I can't believe you thought you could do this. Like, I just, I just was so down on myself. And then, um, 
totally was awful to the TA who taught that class too because she was younger than me and I was oh. such a bitch to her. I mean, oh. I was also drinking gin out of a Nalgene, let's be honest. It wasn't a good, no one was having a good time there. Yeah. But like, yeah, I was just like, these like 18 year olds were in there just drawing beautiful things and I was like, you're never going to be an artist. You're an idiot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think a lot of that stems from a somewhat limited exposure for most people to like what art actually is. You know, there's a very sort of narrow scope. It's like, oh, you can do something that is realistic. Like, like photorealism has become this like gold standard for like quality and art for, I think, a lot of like lay people. And that's a failure of our education system. Well, I still get plenty of shit from people on my own. People are like, why don't you put something on that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's really like, missing something. people still have a like hard a person. time with abstract art, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, like 70 years later after abstract expressionism, and it's still just kind of like, well, what's the point of this? Right. Yeah. Put a flower on it. Put yeah. a person on it. I know. <laughs> it just reminds me of Pablo. I'm going to call you out one more time. Every time he looks at my artwork, he tells me to put a frog on it. So, yeah, yeah he's good like that. <laughs> Hmm. Tell me about working at Creative Growth. Okay. Um, I started volunteering there last fall, um, sort of just in an effort to get plugged back into the community a little bit. You know, I think after like a couple of years of lockdown and also some, some of my own shifts in terms of being a little less plugged in with the world at large, I was like, okay, I need to like get back into the world and like be a part of something larger than myself. And so I started volunteering there and then this spring was, will you tell everyone what creative, I don't think people know. Yeah. Yeah. So a little context, creative growth is a, um, art center for adults with developmental disabilities. And it is, um, in near downtown Oakland, they've been in the same location for as long as they've been around. They were founded in 1974. Um, and are really kind of at the leading edge of creating an art space for folks with disabilities and really like treating them with all of the sort of respect and legitimacy as artists mm-hmm. that they deserve. Um, and, you know, like it's their the idea of like an adult daycare is really like anathema to them. It's really not what they're doing. They're, no, if you saw the artwork coming out of it, then you would know that that's not the case. Not at all. No. And and that's how the artists there are treated is as really serious practicing artists who their vision and their agency as artists and as people is really honored and is really important to the mission of that place. And I think that they really sort of developed that model and and they sort of set the standard on a national level for how that is approached. Um, and, you know, you have places like NIAD and Creativity Explored, which are in Richmond and in San Francisco, respectively, that sort of followed that model. Um, yeah. What do you do when you're there? Are you working hand-in-hand with artists to cultivate a project or a vision that they have? Or tell them, what are you doing? No, I'm actually sort of on the other side of things. I work in the gallery space and then also as part of a grant program that they're doing where they are documenting and cataloging the work of some of their their previous artists, folks that have been with them for a really long time and who, for the most part, are deceased at this point, um, mm-hmm. but have like a really well-established career in the arts. Um, the, the, 
main artist that this grant is focused on is an artist named Judith Scott, who was with them for probably 15 or 20 years, possibly longer. And she does these really amazing sculptures that are wrapped objects, essentially. So it'll be groupings of different kinds of objects that are then wrapped in layers and layers and layers of yarn and thread and ribbon. Um, they have a really organic quality to them, a really sort of like magpie-like element. Mm-hmm. Um, like it, it's really fun working on this aspect of the grant because we're pulling these boxes out of storage. We're opening them up. We're doing a condition report. We're listing all of the materials, which is like this really fun game of I spy. Just yeah, this sounds so around, fun. Like, oh, what is this made of? <laughs> what is this weird thing in the middle of this object? Yeah. And actually they've x-rayed some of her works because there it's a bit of a mystery there. Like what, what the original object was? Yeah, to yeah. see what the structure is because sometimes it's totally obscured with the layers of things that she's wrapped it in. That's so cool. Yeah. And they've kept her most of the collection. Mm-hmm. Is the grant to help other people come and do work? What's the grant for? The grant is essentially to create a digital archive of all of this work. Oh, I see. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. And and also to um, to get these works. Um, there's a bit of an issue with some of the the like list of the archive the on the sort of back end museum registrar end of things. Like the, the data, it doesn't quite line up. There, there's lists that are in conflict with one another. So we're really trying to get her collection really dialed in and organized because she's a really significant artist. Um, and her work is acquired by really well-established institutions on an international level. It's badass. Yeah, it's like real like blue chip art world I shit. I can love that. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds enjoyable. Yeah. If you have to work, do something like that. Yeah, and you know, this has like been such a really great experience for me because I've been doing freelance graphic design work for years, painted murals, and that was my primary source of income. And when COVID hit, the mural game just completely evaporated. Mm -hmm. And so I've been really like having a hard time kind of adapting to that. Um, I, you know, to an extent I like doing graphic design, but there's aspects of it that can be really exhausting. Um, the client part. Yeah. 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 Just, you know, (laughs) having someone nitpick your creative output, to death Mm -hmm. and it's frequently people who are not really well equipped to do that kind of nitpicking yeah um i had a recent i think this can be illustrated really well by um a mural i did for a startup in san francisco recently and i had a third party i had someone project managing this which um, I love to have a project manager because I don't like doing um, the contract work or things like that. Like, mm-hmm. I'm glad to have someone do things like that. But where project management gets really poor for me is I often don't actually meet with the client. And then now I've gotten better where I ask to meet with the client because I've had a learning curve. And like, mm-hmm. this was the final straw on it, which is where I've the client kept coming back. And like, we are looking at pictures of work I've already made that the client has selected and um, in which I, I would really categorize this particular style of mine as static and yeah. 2D. Yeah. yeah. And she keeps coming back with feedback, asking for movement. And 
I'm drawing and drawing and drawing. And there's an end point to this too. But even as you said, like the mural game has become tougher since COVID. So like mm -hmm. I need this job. So I'm like, we're, we're in endless fucking redraws. And finally, I'm like, I just need to have like a Zoom with this client. Like I, I can't understand because I'm just, there's so much movement going on and she's saying she doesn't like it. So in the end, what this client meant is they had originally plotted out a square for me, like they on on the wall. They were like, "This is the dimensions," and what the client wanted is they wanted not a square. That's what the movement meant. That's what that client meant by movement. So it's yeah. like shit like that. This is something I run into with design and like the client interface so often is people just not having the vocabulary, right? And that's why I usually default to just being like, send me examples of what you like. Yes. You know, if you can't verbalize what you want in an email, then like find pictures. Question. Do you have clients, um, when your mural work or whatever, do you get the generalized graffiti style thing? Cause that's my favorite one to get. The client wants graffiti style. It's no. like, oh, do they? <laughs> Unfortunately not. Um, this has happened to me like a kajillion times. Yeah. And I'm like, do you, I mean, I use spray paint. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. yeah. They yeah. also don't know what they're talking about either. No. They, what they mean is they want something that is street art, mm -hmm. which they were already going to get because I am a street artist. Yeah. So it's just like, yeah, but I love that graffiti. Style. Yeah, I'm like, oh, you want a bunch of people to come vandalize your building? No problem. Yeah, we'll we can do graffiti style. No yeah. <laughs> Etch tags on your windows. Yes. Yeah. No, you know, I think a lot of this just stems from people not really having the vocabulary to describe aesthetics and design and art, and that's unfortunate because it's not something that is. It's, it should be accessible and it's, it's not hard, you know, it's not, there's not like an ivory tower kind of thing. You just have to like immerse yourself in that world and learn the vocabulary and really just like look at a lot of art. Right. Yeah. In some ways though, I feel like it's a little bit arbitrary too, because do you, I mean, I have my own vocabulary to discuss my styles of artwork. Like one of them I call rays mm -hmm. and it's my gradient, like ch geometric chunks and then I have these ones that make a shape like this and lots of little lines. I call them the X's. Mm -hmm. So it's like, yeah, I mean, it's also tough too because that's how I delineate my work in my own mind. Yeah. One, I've just been calling the mountains because so many people think they are mountains. They're not. But I've just now called them that because I'm like, you have to give up the ghost at some fucking yeah. point. They're triangles, but okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you, yeah. yeah. If it makes it easier to call them mountains. Yeah, we're know, doing it. It's one less email back and forth. Yeah. Oh my god. I'm like, no, I left Colorado. These definitely aren't mountains. Yeah. No, they're not the flat irons. I flat oh my god. <laughs> I've done my share for, my fair share of flat iron art. I I did one. Well two. Where actually. did you paint? Um so I painted on the side of Made Life. Do you know that it's like a they call themselves a creative incubator. Okay. They had a gallery. I I think they're still around. I'm not entirely sure, but there was a gallery space and then like a whole area in the back where they were doing, um, they were like teaching people how to do Photoshop, Final Cut, um, how to like make beats in Ableton. Um, downtown? Is it on like Pearl Street? It's Is on it close Pearl Street, yeah. but not like downtown. It's a little further yeah. away. I do know yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I went out there and did an art show and painted a mural on the side of the building. Um, I've always... I'm jealous of you yeah. because I've always wanted to go back. No one there cares or knows about me, by the way. So yeah. like, this is just all like in my, the legend of Brit. Like I yeah. want to have some sort of like, 
this is all fantasy 100 percent. 100 this hot mess that used to be prowling your streets mm-hmm. and smoking cigarettes and up all hours of the day cursing people running in the morning from her stoop being a hot mess wants to come back and show everyone that she got better yeah when in fact absolutely no one in boulder gives a fuck about me or remembers me at all which is best yeah actually well and you know what's like fun and nice about boulder is that like people there are really stoked about art that was definitely a big takeaway for me um just people being like, yeah, this is great. They are, but for such a town like that, they, sh- they show who they are because there's not a bunch of it. Yeah. And that's because I've always said that, like, they're closeted, like, they want to be liberals, but they're not because they have way too much money for that. Yeah. I whisper that part. Yeah. yeah. It's a rigid town. I mean, they banned smoking on Pearl Street. Smoking cigarettes. Not weed. <laughs> I mean... Actually, excellent question. Probably not. No. Because weed is good for everyone, right? <laughs> yeah, but you can't smoke it out in the open there. At least when I was there. You can't? Well, it was right when recreational had been passed. I okay. Think, like a year or two before. And I was under the impression that you can't just like start chiefing wherever you want. Because, <laughs> you know, they got a got a rep to maintain. They do. It's yeah. Very nice, clean. Colorado's playground. Town. Yeah. Yeah. You know, actually, like, what it sort of reminds me of, I've never been to Northern Europe, but, like, that's what it makes me think of. Mm-hmm. It's very wealthy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's up in the mountains. There's, like, really nice, high-functioning public transit. Mm-hmm. Everything's very clean. People don't lock their doors at night. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Yeah. All of that. I worked at a restaurant there that was uh, owned by Elon's brother. Oh. I know. Lovely. <laughs> Are you also hoping that Elon and Zuck accidentally kill themselves in their death match that's coming up? Yeah, yeah. I think probably only one of them is going to kill themselves. Do so you think they're actually going to really do it? No. Yeah, they can't, right? No. I mean, it's just... What is publi- it's, More publicity for either one of them? Yeah, it's two pathetic man-children <laughs> scrabbling for relevance and an ego boost. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, really, like... Zuckerberg actually trains, and if it came down to it, I think he would he would whoop Elon's ass. Probably, yeah. Someone wrote me something on Instagram that like if this is going to be a terrible story. I'm already set. I'm sorry, podcasters, but it was someone someone had asked me if I had seen some barbecue that Zuck had that he had like put live, and it's like so fucking weird and awkward. You don't know what I'm talking about. No, but I mean, he, I really think he might be an android. No, he's not right. Yeah. His eyes are really scary. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this guy was like, he's a tattoo artist, and he's like, you don't know what I'm talking about? I'm like, no, but can I, I'll come get a tattoo from you, and you can just reenact it for me. And he's yeah. like, that's extra. I'm like, that's fine. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm not going to go look it up on YouTube, so just please. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I want to do right now? Will you pick something from the Ask It basket? Okay. Which is not a basket. It's just a bowl now. I repurposed the basket for all of my dog's medications because now they're all on like five because I just decided to get sick all at once like dogs do. You got some lint stuck on here I'm too. sorry. <laughs> See, I'm a hot mess. What is one lesson you've learned that you would like to pass on? Hmm. I think a good lesson that I'm trying to keep very like in the forefront of my mind right now is the importance of being in community 
Um, I think that for me particularly, and maybe more generally speaking, artists have this tendency to isolate, to be loners, to be the hermit in the cave. Um, and I've definitely leaned way too far into that mentality mm. at various times. And I think the the forced isolation of lockdown and all that stuff, like I think really drove that home, how important it is to actually be in in community, to be part of something larger. Um, yeah. Yeah. I hope people don't forget that too quick. Yeah. Yeah. I think everyone really was shocked by how much they need people mm-hmm. and places and things. And then again, the world happens so fast around us that we're so quick to forget yeah. the importance of it. Yeah. I agree with you. We're going to be best friends, David. Whether, <laughs> I mean, whether you like it or not. Okay. That's fine with me. <laughs> okay. You were kind of talking about a project that you wanted to do and you wanted to... So writing is something you do that you enjoy. Mm-hmm. And you had kind of touched a little bit on the go ship fire because that really changed things for us in the bay Mm -hmm. for artists and for everyone you kind of had like you said it was a tipping point in my mind i i sort of look at things in a before and after kind of lens you know where that yeah that that event was so the, the trauma involved was really significant. I think it was really, really impactful on a lot of people in a really, really difficult way. Mm-hmm. I think the reverberations of that event specifically had a very serious effect on the art scene in the East Bay and really the country at large um, because it put these DIY spaces in the spotlight in a really, really fucked up negative way. Yes. Um, I think the preemptive shutdowns of so many of these spaces had a really, really negative effect on, on creative scenes nationwide, but especially here. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, it wasn't just like the sort of sketchy warehouses. I think, th- and this is all anecdotal. I don't really have like numbers to back that this up though. If I remember right, East Bay Express ran an article about this probably a couple of years after the fact where they actually looked at the numbers of evictions and inspections that had resulted in spaces getting closed down in the wake of that. And what happened was that the city was ignoring the directors directives of the mayor at the time who promised that people wouldn't get displaced and promised that spaces wouldn't get shut down, that they would change the laws or work with them in a way that would be flexible to prevent people from getting displaced. But if you actually look at the numbers, that's not what happened. Yep. Um, And, you know, I think this also extended to a lot of residential situations as well, Mm -hmm. where, you know, the warehouses were like the main area of focus, but any landlord that had a situation where it was a little sketchy, it was a little weird, their tenants were like funky artists who were grandfathered into a really cheap rent, they took that opportunity to say, nope, you're out. Yep. So that they could then capture the market rate value for their rental property. Um, And I think probably hundreds of people were displaced as a result of that just in Oakland. There was a significant exodus right around that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that started the push for people moving to LA Mm -hmm. um, because there was still a lot of cheap warehouse space there available at the time. Texas. Yeah. I mean, Godspeed for better or for (laughs) worse. I've never been to Texas. I've been to El Paso, which is not Texas, but. Oh, I've been through, I, I at one point, 
built houses in Juarez and I did drive through El Paso. That doesn't count. Driving through something doesn't count. Yeah. I feel like I like Texas though, because you know what? I'm kind of a cowboy. I have a lot of secret aspects. Okay. I wouldn't mind country line dancing and eating some barbecue, which is my expectation of what happens in Texas. Am I wrong? Well, I mean, there is that. And then there's also like the shitheel racism and yeah. the Christo-fascist government. I know. But yeah. But plot twist, California has plenty of that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. It's not going great. No, but you know. They're still just genuinely the oldest people in the fucking world running our country. They're so old. Yes. It's... <laughs> If if it were not so, uh, just if it didn't affect all of us so deeply and so negatively, yeah. it would be funny. Yes, like you know, Diane Feinstein is like for real on some weekend at Bernie's kind I of know. shit, <laughs> <I know. laughs> propped up in the wheelchair, giving like, her like her, her like the power of attorney or what's this her daughter has now? Like yeah, yeah, just okay. Yeah, I know. I read that. And I wasn't shocked at all. Like nothing that didn't register to me even whatsoever. I was just mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, okay. And then that. Yeah. Well, I mean, Mitch McConnell had like a, they didn't say what actually happened to him, but he went up there for that press release and yeah. something happened. Know. You know, I have such a hard time looking at his face because he just looks like a cartoon character, like a turtle or tortoise of some sort. He looks so turtle-like and also like, um, I don't ascribe to this conspiracy theory and <laughs> it's one that like... Very quickly veers into like the typical anti-Semitic like protocols of the elders of Zion kind of shit. Got it. But are you familiar with the red reptile theory? No. So this idea that all of the like governing powers at the highest levels of industry and government in the world are all reptilian blood-sucking aliens wearing human suits. Yeah. I mean, does this have something to do with the reptiles that are running DIA and things like that? Yeah. that's Okay, we're yeah. tying it into yeah, that. Yeah, it's all that, Got it. that same yeah. shit. <laughs> it, I never delve too deep into stuff like that. I'm, like, generally amused, but also, like, don't... I'm always afraid of getting sucked into things like that, even just visual, like even just knowing. You know what I'm saying? I just, well, sometimes I just don't want to know yeah. too much. I'm like, this is too... Because then what if I, like believe that <laughs> what if it, one of the arguments so compelling that i'm like yes none of the arguments are that compelling okay good because then yeah. you don't want to lose me to lizard people no okay i mean if <laughs> if you're even i think a tiny bit cynical and rational you're probably good only the tiniest bit. yeah only the tiniest bit something in in what you were just saying um reminded me to talk about when something that you and I kind of had in common or we experienced when we were younger, which was like the sameness, how when we were in school, being in the mainstream and being like regular or normal or like one in the crowd was really important mm-hmm. because we had been talking about school shootings. Yeah. And my sister's school was Columbine and I was a freshman when that happened. Mm-hmm. And the repercussions of that were I mean, we could talk about that for hours, but one of the things was like, there was just no more, uh, like wearing black was just out. Like it wasn't just like trench coats or combat boots. Like there, you like, you know, it was intense. Like and yeah. anything that made you look different or like dying of the hair or whatever, all that shit, what they put the kibosh on that real strict mm-hmm. rules, metal detectors at the doors, like you name it. And you were mentioning that something happened at your school along the same lines that made them really crack down. Yeah, though it was not like, wasn't trench coat mafia. It was just like our local 
cholos doing dumb cholo <laughs> shit, <laughs> which is its own thing. But yeah, like I think that you know, being a child of the '90s, I think there was a, this tribalism that got established in youth culture, arguably in the '80s. Like I think it was really like codified then. Like you think about like like the Breakfast Club. I it's knew like you were gonna the, say the that. Quintessential <laughs> example of that. Yes, yeah, perfect. Where it's like okay, each person represents their little little group, and they but then we can all come together yeah, at the end. Yeah. Yes. And you know, people were not coming together no. at my school. Um, it was really antagonistic. It was really mean. Um, middle school, high school was different. By high school, no one really gave a shit. But like in middle school, it was like. So much of how you sort of found yourself and expressed your identity and validated your place in the world was in opposition to another group. Whether you were in the in-group looking disparagingly at the weirdos on the outside or being on the opposite end of it, which is where I found myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I feel like one way or another, a lot of how that worked... At... The things that happen when we're kids really stick with us more than we, I think, realized for a long time. And it's just, it's been interesting to watch some of those old ideas still play out in my own life. And I'm always like, God, who's having that thought? Or where did that come from? I mean, Mm -hmm. even when like, I was just talking about liking country music, it's so funny because like, when I was in high school, you like, you were in a lane, you liked this kind of music. Yeah. If you dared say you liked other kind of music, then you were like, what the fuck are you even talking about? And Mm -hmm. then you're ostracized. And that's so crazy to me. Like, yeah, I genuinely am a person who loves all kinds of music now. But like, when I was in I don't know, like high school, we were listening to like Turbo Negro and like, I don't know, we were listening, we were punk, we were listening to punk and like metal, Mm -hmm. skateboarding. Yeah. I wasn't skateboarding. I was a swimmer, so I didn't do anything that was going to break my wrist, Mm -hmm. but I was hanging out with the skateboarders because Jackass had come out and before that, a little DVD called Camp Kill Yourself. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm talking about? I've ever seen it. No, who put that out? Just dumb. It's just dumb skateboarder shit. Like skateboarder yeah. dudes doing insane, ridiculous things. Yeah. And then we were so bored. We were like, let's, we're going to do that too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was like such an interesting time because like making your own media was really in its infancy. Mm-hmm. And there was, it wasn't like fully accessible because like camcorders were pretty expensive. Getting the tapes for the camcorders was expensive. There was like a whole, it was not the way it is yeah, now. To all you Gen Zers out there, like we were born when there wasn't internet, A. Eh? Yeah. And it was, also this is before phones that had any sort of technology, any mm-hmm. video technology. Yeah. I was operating at this juncture, like on a Motorola, not even the Razor yet. Yeah. Whatever the one was before that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, if you think about like what the sort of vehicles were for sharing and spreading culture pre-internet, it's it's really interesting to think about like the the self-made video and skate videos are such a really good example of that. I think about graffiti videos as well. Um, and then you had the sort of like weird fringe phenomena that were related to that shit, like bum fights. Mm-hmm. Um, good God. Yeah, and so like it was just this like weird street underground culture. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible. Yeah. I mean, reality television is its still such a phenomenon, but I can remember very much the advent of that, like Jerry Springer being the first one I can think of. 
Yeah, you know, the talk shows were definitely a thing, but I guess when I think about reality television as we understand it now, I think that MTV oh, pioneered, yeah. pioneered all Road that. rules. Road and rules and, and real world. Real world. Yeah. I wanted to be on the real world so bad. <laughs> yeah, <same> here. <laughs> oh, yeah. my God. And yeah. I just watched an episode of The Sanford. I found it on Hulu or something the other day, and yeah. I like looked it up, and I was like, oh, my I God. I mean, talking about cultural artifacts, that shit is fascinating. I know. Yeah. It's a real time capsule of yeah. what who these people were, what was important, and mm-hmm. I was just like... Yeah. And, you know, in a sense, that, like, reflects that sort of breakfast club format mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, we take, like, all these really different people. We can sort of flatten them out to their individual stereotypes, and then we, like, mix it up and watch the sparks fly. Oh. All right. That brings me to my last flip frivolous question for you, which was okay. not on our pre-interview because I had this thought. I was just thinking... Um, while I was driving, I was like, what other things do I want to know? And the question is, are you dating right now? No. Well, sort of. Okay. Yeah. Are you in the, on the apps? I am on the apps. Because I love talking about the apps. Okay. Yeah. So much. Because I just want to know what your app life is like. First of all, can we know what apps you are on? Uh, mostly Hinge. Okay. Yeah. That is my preferred one, too. Because, like, Tinder is washed. Like... I've never been on Tinder. Oh, really? Because when I got sober, I'd never been on an app when, like, pre-sobriety because I didn't have to because I just had to show up at a bar, Mm -hmm. and that's all that had to happen. Yeah. Um, Then I got on the apps when I was sober, and I had already done plenty of um, the casual one-night stand life, so that's what I understood Tinder was for, and I was like, okay, we're cool on that. Like, Mm -hmm. I already done that. So then I did Bumble Mm -hmm. and Hinge. Okay. And I met Josh on Hinge. That's okay. how he and I met. Yeah. I have no prayer of meeting someone organically. No yeah. one has, has hit on me in living in the Bay in real life ever fucking once. I'm dead serious. Wow. Never huh. happened. Do you think it's my face or my tattoos? I mean, you don't you have just, to answer it right now. you have like just a really scary aura. I mean, I feel like now that I've been getting Botox, I'm not frowning as much anymore. So I feel like maybe, okay, so maybe this is pre-Botox. Uh, yeah, maybe that <laughs> yeah, resting bitch face. No, I actually face. can't <laughs> frown. Okay, back to you. Yeah. So I was on OkCupid back in the day. Um, and the it's really funny you bring this up because like in terms of like self-identification and meaning making via the internet, especially negotiated through the confines of these apps, mm-hmm. all of them... But, you know, specifically dating apps, I think it's really fucking fascinating. It's a really interesting sort of like, like sociological study. Yes, this is why I miss being on them just because I like, and this is why I will live vicariously through my friends who are still doing it. Because I'm like, tell me what's going, what have you seen recently? Send me some of these items. Like, Mm -hmm. who are yes. Yeah, I mean, you could totally write a dissertation on like the, the sort of like dynamics of the apps and identity and So what kind of profile person are you? Because I'll just speak for myself that in my earlier days, I kind of put up some pictures that were my very first Bumble profile um, was like the main picture was of me in a shirt that said, listen to Black Sabbath. (laughs) And I had... Uh, I had a gutted fish in my hand. I was gutting. Nice. I was gutting the fish. Yeah. So that it was the picture of me mid doing that, and I was like, "Oh, so you're a fish bro?" <laughs> I was a fish bro, yeah. and I thought that was super funny, and people would think that was funny, and yeah. it would be like a comment starter. Yeah, no. <laughs> I did end up meeting a long term partner on that, and he was, of course, like he falls absolutely into the the gap of people that would be interested in a woman who 
put their profile as that. Yeah. But yeah, like I think I, I used a lot of like, I didn't, I used pictures where I wasn't being very pretty, let's mm. say, you know okay. what I'm saying? And then maybe had some like obscure lines of things that I thought were hilarious or whatever, trying to see who was what. And that did not work out for me. Yeah. What's your app likes? Oh, I'm so fucking lazy about it. I'm just like, hey, I'm an artist. <laughs> hey. Oh, I got a cute dog too. Hey. That works. Yeah. The dog really does. I mean, it's not that you don't have your own merit, but you have Issa. Yes. I mean, he is far cuter than me. <laughs> I disagree, but like dogs, you know yeah. what I'm saying? If you're a dog person, you're a dog person. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm wooed by a dog every time. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty fortunate in that aspect. And I think like there's there's not a lot of artists in the world for, you know, the reasons that we discussed. And so you automatically have this thing where you're a little bit different. Um, and I think in the Bay Area, especially in the last like five to eight years, this influx of new people and in the last five years, especially the influx of new people being not that interesting, um, that like really works to my advantage. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. it's funny because, um, the reason I, Josh and I almost didn't meet was because he had as his profession sculptor. Yeah. And I was like, male artist, that's going to be a hard no. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, I had just come off a situation where I had gone on a, a date with an artist where I had to be saved by another person in that complex because it was like two hours of him telling me about his work and he didn't ask me a single fucking question about myself and I was like completely hostage and I did not I don't know why I couldn't get myself out I could have just been like I'm leaving now yeah. but instead I texted someone else and was like I need like a I don't because I'm a nice person well honestly, maybe and also I wanted more of a artist seg. and you don't want to just be like yeah whatever I didn't because his art is cool but yeah. also it's just like I did not come here like this was not it was a first date and yeah it was like well unfortunately that's not just male artists that do that it's probably all I know it's wrong of, of me men, to categorize just men well but no artists. a lot of men do that like right. you know the, the level of privilege that you experience as a male in this this country and this world <laughs> means that you are a bit of like solipsist and you can't like relate to people and engage with them on a, like in the level of exchange, you know, it's like, I'm going to talk at you about me right, for two hours. Yeah. Josh ended up asking me a question, which ended up breaking the ice. And he asked me what my favorite dinosaur was. Yeah. And that would, there no more perfect question could have been asked because I am a Jurassic Park, like, stand. Like, I love Jurassic Park. I love dinosaurs. Yeah. If it was acceptable for me to still play with dinosaurs, I probably would. And that was, like, a great question. So, like, what's your, do you have, like, an opening thing that you're going to, like, what's your interesting thing that you ask people? Because I, I don't know you great. We're just new friends. Mm -hmm. But also, I know you well enough to probably think you're not asking something super run of the mill because you don't like to be bored. No, I don't like to be bored. But I think like something that is difficult with especially Tinder, maybe less so Hinge, but I think they're both they don't tell you a lot about the person. And if the, the person on the other end of that profile isn't really trying hard to like put it all out there, right? you don't necessarily have like a good inroad to like... To ask a meaningful question or an yeah. interesting pertinent question to that person's yeah. life. And that was the difference between OkCupid and these newer apps where OkCupid was really in depth. You could write a shitload about yourself. They had like this like 50 question long thing and you didn't have to fill out the whole thing, but like... You could really like tell your story right. on that platform. And I think 
it it's just a very different sort of way of experiencing dating on the apps and also like looking at how people choose to present themselves on those apps um well hinge asks you your love language what's yours um i hate the word love language i I kind of it is a little bit triggering now yeah yeah i mean it's just as with all things in like our yeah modern day yeah it's one of those phrases that's just become so like cliche and hackneyed because everyone uses it and it just loses but still we must know yours i'm sorry you are here on this podcast and it's the people want to know yeah um probably like acts of service yes yeah i I think that's like a, a big like virgo impulse is like wanting to be useful and problem solving and like being there to like support and help yeah yeah is there all right we're skimming we're scrolling we're looking yeah is there an automatic no because i i know what mine is i I actually have more than one but i'm i'm interested if you have one like terms of pick like activities or like pictures or whatever like burning man (laughs) absolutely 100% 100% just like right off the bat just like damn you're cute but nah. no <laughs> like... <laughs> oh mine is pictures of men in their full cycling gear with the helmet on still okay yeah yeah no. that's with funny. like the tight the whole you know what i'm talking about yeah. the whole fit interestingly enough like that is actually something i would not be a deal breaker for me for well, you are a cyclist i am a cyclist right yeah do you, are you secretly wearing spandex around that I no. haven't seen? That's what I'm talking about. No, it's, I don't. It's I don't not wear a about. Kit it's about like, anything that is your personality. Making activities or whatever your personality is always something that I'm like is a warn. It's a flag for me. Mm-hmm. Like I cycle. Okay, cool. But like, what else? I know. But like, it's cool that you do that. But that isn't you as a person. You know, there's delineations between these things. Well, and it's uh, like yeah. one would be led to believe that frosé all day is some people's personalities, as yeah. are tacos. The love of tacos is an entire personality trait. You know, that's also one of my like automatic swipe left. Tacos? No, not tacos. If just people are like, I love whiskey and coffee. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> neat. So does everybody else. Like, well, cool. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, I know, but what kind of Skittle is your favorite? Let's get down to the nitty gritty. Yeah, like, what yeah. the fuck? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like talking about different flavors, like the cycling world has its own sort of like layers of subculture and like so that like you know the the full kit the like spandex the really expensive road bike like all that shit is like one sort of aspect of it but there's so many other like layers to the culture of course and people can exist in multiple parts of those um and for me my like introduction to cycling as an adult came through like fixed gear culture and so that was coming from like street culture. A lot of people who were skateboarders and graffiti writers got into riding bikes. And that the extent to which that culture overlaid with bike messenger culture, which was already really established um, and also very rooted in the street and had mm-hmm. a lot of overlap with street culture. Like that is my sort of like jumping off point for that. I come from, I'm going to just make a caveat for mine, which is, um, Having lived for a long time in Colorado, I've dated people who are both kind of cyclists that we're talking about here, if I mm-hmm. want to just try, kind of draw a line. Yeah. And um, the one that I... Um, 
it's always like, I don't know, it's the people who, are, it's like the ones who are like, adventure. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, they we're doing stuff. Mm -hmm. If you're not doing stuff, I'm not interested. Where are we going this weekend? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And like, I'm not interested in that. Yeah. Yeah. I like where I live. I like my community. I like, I'm a homebody now too. Like, mm -hmm. I like to be comfortable. I don't feel the need to be going and like packing everything in all the time. You know, that's just actually not how I am anymore as a person. I yeah. like love keeping my heart rate at a normal, like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is like still being in a, in a calm down from all the years of like chaos, but yeah, I'm just like, I'm not seeking that. Like I don't need to prove to people that I can keep up or need yeah. to do this. Yeah. I don't need to do it every weekend. I mean, I do enjoy doing it and I, I would say I, I quite like getting my heart rate up. Um, nice. Yeah, I mean, it's like my therapist was just insisting, you know, like you need to have a consistent exercise routine. This is one of the most dependable and like effective ways of staving off depression. And I was like, okay. And, you know, like back in the day, I used to be a really avid cyclist. I commuted. I like rode a lot for fun. I participated in and organized a lot of races in Albuquerque. Um, and that was all really fun shit. And that was all very much like DIY. It wasn't like, it wasn't like the roadie culture, which is, you know, that, mm -hmm. that spandex and the like $5,000 bike and all that world. Um, and, you know, I kind of like fell off of that when I moved here, primarily because I had that really gnarly accident. Yes. And, you know, the getting back on the bike was a bit difficult and also just getting plugged back into that, that subculture of doing alley cat races and like that whole world. Um, but, you know, more recently I started riding again on a regular basis and realized, I really realized it when I fucking sprained my wrist about a month ago and couldn't ride anymore. And I was like, oh, everything else like hinges on this shit. Like the like the good brain chemicals from exercising regularly, the sense of achievement from like, oh, I did this ride. I do the same route, but it took me an hour and 45 instead of two hours. Mm -hmm. Like I'm feeling faster. I'm feeling stronger. The better sleep, like the better energy levels, the sort of self-care routine follows from that. Eating better follows from that. Also, like, you know, I meant heart rate by, I wasn't meaning physical activity, but I see where you might have thought that. Because yeah. um, I'm going to tell you what I do for a workout in a minute. And okay. If I haven't already, because everyone's going to freak the fuck out. Um, <laughs> it's so important for what we do as a career. Mm -hmm. Muraling is the hardest physical. I mean, I am wrecked. If I'm not in good shape when I'm on a ladder for mm -hmm. whatever, it's like your whole body got punched yeah. If you aren't taking care of yourself, if you're not having good practices on the lift or the scaffold or whatever, and mm -hmm. if you're not strong. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it can literally cripple you. For, like if you're, yeah. I mean, being on a scaffold for a week or two, like then your legs are jelly, your back hurts so bad. Oh, your fucking feet. Your feet. Oh my God. I like, know. Ladder time and like my heels is just it's awful. I know. Like, People make fun of me. The younger, the young bucks, because I show up and I wear these like, um, like my Timberland work boots or I have a, I have several pairs of work boots that I'll wear mm -hmm. no matter the weather or whatever. And these people, and these kids are in the vans or whatever. I'm like, just you wait, 
just wait to what's going to happen. Cause like yeah. my feet cannot be on a ladder without having those shoes on at whatsoever. Like I pay for it almost immediately. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was up on the ladder for eight hours a day in vans. Yeah. And then it was like, Oh, I can't walk. No. Age <laughs> will hit you. Yeah. Like, and so, um, I love working out, which is so hilarious because I would have said that like, um, you know, even just a year ago as an avid cigarette smoker, I did yoga all the time, but it was like, I was chilling, you know, yoga's mm -hmm. not. Now I do like hit classes okay. where like it's usually a class led by a woman with a bunch of cute other girls in their in their outfits and their special water bottles and we're listening to pop music and getting yelled at by this female teacher to go harder and you know you have it in you. Mm -hmm. I do that for an hour in a heated class like five times a week and your bitch loves it. I love it so much. Like it's you know, so hard and I'm sweating so yeah. much and I'm like, this is fucking awesome. That's really funny because I've for years now actually like entertained the idea of trying to become a spin class instructor. Oh, you'd be so I can see this because like and also like picking the music too. Yes, so many of those classes have fucking horrible music. Your class would be like a breakthrough. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, just yes. get up there and yell at people and yeah. like play some really awesome shit for an hour. I'm on board. It's it's really funny. I painted a mural in San Francisco in 2019 in the it's where thrift town used to be on 16th and mission mm -hmm. and there was a spin class on the opposite wall and it was also an active construction site so for most of the day it was just like power tools banging and crashing just like all that shit mm -hmm. and then around four those dudes would go home and then the spin class would start up on the other side of the wall and, and you would like, be able to listen to it yeah <laughs> it was like come on girls let's go I don't, I'm not ready for a spin cycle class. Yeah. My little sister does Peloton and my sister's like a badass. And yeah. I watch those like, there's this guy, I think named Cody or something who's, who is very funny and snarky. And mm -hmm. like my sister will send me these little videos of him being sassy in class. And it's always yeah. really funny. And I think I would love taking an online class from him, yeah. but I want nothing to do with standing up on a bike that looks so hard. They're mostly like, they're like not totally seated the whole time. No. You're like up. No, I have, it's because I'm bad at biking. Now you've, you've found out the core of it. Okay. I know where all this comes from. Is but a it's fear. a stationary bike, so. I'll fuck it up. <laughs> if you're bad at biking in real life, how are you going to be good at biking on a stationary bike? Because there's no possibility of tipping over. <laughs> we say that. I think they're pretty stable. Okay. Yeah. They, they'd be opening themselves up to lawsuits. Have you ever not. taken a spin class before? I have not. I want you to, and I want yeah. to find out what you think about it. I have a friend who is an avid cyclist in Albuquerque who has done spin classes, and he said they're really intense. More intense than any bike ride he can go on on yeah. his own. Yeah. I believe it. Yeah. <sighs> We're at two hours, my friend. Damn. That kind of flew by. Yeah. I'm really happy that we got to have this whole combo. Yeah, totally. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. You're badass. Yeah, you are too. And we're going to be best friends for forever after yes. this, right? What's our best friend tattoo going to be? You don't have to answer now, but maybe, I mean, give it some thought. Yeah, we should think about that. Okay. I will. It's yeah. important questions. Trying to get tattooed more regularly. I was getting tattooed at least once a year for quite a while, and then that sort of tapered off. Do you have a person? Uh, I have several. I mean, I have like my best friend in Las Cruces who has done a good chunk of my tattoos and um, it's always nice to get some work from him. But yeah. then, yeah, you know, I have like a handful of good friends who are tattoo artists and try to 
patronize them as much as possible and, and you know, branch out a little bit too. Like I just got one from Chris last year. So I've got a Chris too. Yeah. What'd you get? This cool little crescent moon. Fuck yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And you can see that it's a little freshy. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, just got my torso done, the sides and my stomach, top of my stomach done this fucking year. God bless Why you. did I wait that long? Like you get that stuff, people get it done when you're younger. Yeah. Because it is miserable now. I still have to do a back cover. It's more like a flank cover up and it's going to kill me. I know it. I know. But it's, like, you know yeah. what? I'm at an age now and it's also just like, I'm not trying to be cool in the tattoo studio. I don't mm-hmm. give a fuck anymore. I will fully ask for the numbing cream or I'll have already put it on beforehand because it really only works. Numbing cream only works really if you've done it beforehand. Like after you're already in pain, that shit isn't going to do anything. So like yeah. I'm trying to get my hips done. They need to get redone. And my tattoo artist was like, put numbing cream on two hours before, wrap it in, in saran and then you'll be numb and ready for the thing because my tat- hip tattoos hurt like a bitch when I was 18. What is it going to be like now? I mean, the our capacity to tolerate pain as as adults, yeah. It's like But also I wanted to be so cool in the tattoo parlors with all the dudes. Yeah, I, mean, I wanted wanna... to show them what a badass I was. Yeah. And now I don't care if I cry on the tattoo table. Yeah. More power to me. I haven't yet, but it could happen at any moment. Well, I mean, you know the the prevailing wisdom is that like women take tattoos a lot better than men, generally speaking. Right. Yeah. It is the truth. I've, yeah. Although, you know, I watch the chess pieces and some men get, and that seems to be where a lot, I mean, I've seen some real men in serious pain and that's just, it looks terrible. It fucking hurts. Your chest is done. Yeah. 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 That was my second tattoo ever. My first was on my ribs. Oh, you went for it. Yeah. Wow. Well, we didn't finish the rib tattoo. <laughs> I was getting the shakes and my friend was like, nah, we're done. Yeah, we're dude. done here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, also when I was younger, I used to sit for five to seven hours. Yeah. That's just not a thing anymore. Yeah. I'm going to sit for four max. Well, you know, that is the sort of like upside to getting kind of covered. It's like, well, we're just going to do a little puzzle piece right in there. I know. Yeah. I'm like ready for my gap filler days. Yeah. But I'm not there yet. Yeah. But I agree with you. It's like there is just seems to be more of like... I need to get these on my body now because I don't truly, really want to be tattooed when I'm in my 60s. I just yeah. feel like my skin isn't going to be right. No. No. All right. No. And just, I mean, it's, I really enjoy the process of getting a tattoo in terms of like being in the tattoo shop, talking to the artist, getting to know them. It's, it's a really like fun experience for me. Yeah. The other part of it. Yeah. Especially now, it's just like, oh, yeah. fuck. I know. This again? I know. <laughs> Why am I doing this to myself? Because <laughs> the re- result is so important. Like, yeah. I, at no point have I regretted getting this art on my body. Mm-hmm. I genuinely, I like can't wait for more. But the fun part about having so many tattoos, as both of us do, is that I'm less specific about it and I don't mind that. Like, I have a lot of high, like, tattoos that I've, I've, I thought a lot about that I, helped design i didn't draw but like i had ideas from my tattoo artists and work with them and now it's a little bit more fun i'm just like yeah i want a centipede let's put a centipede on here yeah when i was much younger it was like every tattoo had to be be so imbued with meaning Uh and like totally custom and all this shit and now i'm just like throw it on there what are you into (laughs) these days show me your book yes but you know you're gonna get a better tattoo that way i think generally speaking like if you are asking your artist to do something that they are really stoked on it's going to be better for everyone involved. Yep. I learned that too. Yeah. 
It's been so nice to have you. Yeah. All right. Good night, friends. Thanks for joining us. Good night. Au revoir.